Gold Cord, The Story of a Fellowship by Amy Carmichael. Prelude to Chapter 6. He comforteth them that are losing patience. Ecclesiastes 17.24 Will not the end explain the crossed endeavor, earnest purpose foiled? The strange bewilderment of good work spoiled? The clinging weariness, the inward strain? Will not the end explain? Meanwhile, he comforteth them that are losing patience. Tis his way, but none can write the words they hear him say. For men to read, only they know he saith sweet words and comforteth. Not that he doth explain the mystery that baffleth, but a sense husheth the quiet heart. That far, far hence lieth a field set thick with golden grain, wetted in seedling days by many a rain. The end it will explain. Chapter 6, Dead Babies A few days after that hour under the olive trees, our first baby was brought to us straight from the hands of a temple woman. She was a little fragile, creamy-colored thing, like a delicate wax doll. Soon afterwards, two more came. The bar that had kept them from us was down at last. A Swedish pearl fisher has told of the finding of his first large pearl. He said, I sat there for hours holding this precious thing as if I were nursing a baby. That's what pearlers call them, babies. And fairly seeing visions. We, too, saw visions, visions of these three grown up. Within a year, all three babies died. Before that, Mr. Walker, who had been home on short furlough, had returned. He had to leave his wife as she was not well enough to come back so soon. But he brought my mother with him, and she took the little ones into her arms as though they had been her own grandchildren. All will go well now, we thought. But she, who had brought up seven children, was baffled by the delicacy of these tiny infants. It was a different matter when our children's children came, beautiful, healthy things. But that joy was years distant then. We did not know till we learned it by sorrowful experience that many of these sent to us had not had a fair chance. The shut-up life of the girl mother the sorrow shadowing the child born after its father's death, as these first three had been and others were, heavily handicaps the little life. The distressing death ceremonies, the severe penance meted out so unsparingly to the widow, her own abandonment to grief, these miseries do not make a healthy background for any young life, nor does the still darker shadow of wrong that lay behind some. And yet, as we try to answer the question, what holds you, Indian and English, so very close together? We count those days among the most binding. Fear is a cold thing, said my mother one night, when a quick call sent me flying to the nursery and the hot night seemed to shiver. Anxious vigils, the chill of fear, the rain of tears, of such strange things gold cords are made. And they are made of hope, the hope that refuses to despair. We were often tempted to despair. But what hast thou lacked with me that, 
Behold, thou seekest to go to thine own country. And he answered, Nothing. Howbeit, let me go in any wise. It was often like that. There was nothing lacking in the love that we folded round the children, but we could not undo what had been done before they came to us, nor could we create suitable food. We had no doctor. No foster mother would help us in those early days. It was not the custom. And there are some children who cannot thrive on any artificial food. One night, in desperation, I went to the Christian quarter of the village at our eastern gates. On the western side, there is another village. It was wholly Hindu then. It was Christmas Eve. The village church was lighted up, and people were carrying palm branches and strings of colored paper for decorations. The birthday of the child was in everyone's thoughts. In my arms was a sick baby. I held it close and tried to soothe it as I sought for, for some mother who, for the love of that little child, heaven's gift of love to us, would help this piteous baby whose weak wails smote my heart. But I could not find one. It seemed too sad to take it back uncomforted that Christmas Eve. And now to the world in general looking on, not unkindly, we appeared to be failing badly. Where were our hopes? Dead with the dead babies, withering with the withering children. We could not give up. It never came into our minds to do so. But we were sometimes sorely tempted to discouragement. And then always what held us in confidence and peace was some word that was given to us and that we kept in the midst of our heart. A word that was life to us and health to our flesh. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, was one of those words of life and health. When all looked hopeless, we looked back to it. Remember the word unto thy servant, upon which thou hast caused me to hope. A few years later, a sensational lawsuit dragged us into the public gaze and set tongues talking for hundreds of miles all around our quiet hidden home. Publicity is the worst possible thing for work of this sort. For months afterwards, it was harder than ever to save the children. Doors opened after one, after long toil, one by one, were silently, stealthily shut. Had unseen alert watchers been warned to beware? It seemed so. And as child after child, whom we all but had in our arms, was spirited away, we had moments of keen, keen distress. Then another scripture came, and with mighty might succored us. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty, or the lawful captive delivered? But thus saith the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered. For I will contend with him that contendeth with thee, and I will save thy children. Who can fathom the consolation of such a word? Earnestly then our hearts answered, Confirm to thy servant thy promise of thine. That was from Psalm 119.38. And it was confirmed, though it was never easy to find the special child that we exist to save, the child in temple peril. And as we could not take all who needed care, we had to try to keep those for whose rescue we were specially commissioned. 
but more than one baby fold was opened about that time, and many little ones as needy as these of ours were gathered by others into safety. With the coming of each new child, we learned a little more of the private ways of this dreadful underworld of India, but it was a long time before all the secret sources of traffic in the bodies and souls of children were uncovered. And as we penetrated deeper and deeper into the underlife of the land and came upon things that were hateful even to know, we learned what F.H. Myers meant by the fierce and patient purity. Yea, Lord, I know it. Teach me yet anew with what a fierce and patient purity I must confront the horror of the world. We can only touch evil by virtue of the cleansing blood. Nothing but the white fires of God's holiness suffice for such contact. Move out from the full stream of Calvary, and you know yourself not only defenseless, but stained. Once our friend, F.R. Hemingway, keen to give us a little relaxation and knowing how we cared for books, sent one which was partly a study of the seamy side of life in the West. We could not read it. We had enough to do with such contacts in the ordinary way of duty, and we told him so. He sent us Leno Faulkner's lovely little, almost unknown, Cecilia de Noel, then, and the life of Edward Byrne Jones by his wife, and other good things. Such friends and such books were like cool winds, for they carried us into new air. In the life of Byrne Jones, we came upon an arresting paragraph. He spoke of the joy his art had given him, of how he had striven for beauty and good work in it, and had hoped to influence his fellow creatures in both these directions, but that he had to recognize how small, if not absolutely nothing, his influence had been. It was like a summing up of his whole life, Mr. Hall writes. And as we sat in the dusk, his white face and the solemnity of his voice gave me a feeling of awe. I tried once or twice to combat his views, but he would have none of it. Did I not see, he said, that the people who professed the greatest admiration for his work were equally enthusiastic about that whose principles he held in the greatest abomination? To this I had nothing to answer, as I knew it to be true. Such bitter draughts of seeming failure are, are poured out in all ages for those to whom the work is appointed, of carrying on the lasting traditions of the world. I hardly know why this sentence clung to memory. We had never thought of influencing others in the Burn Jones sense of the word, and we had not sought their approval, though sympathy when it came was such a cheer that the least little word or look was treasured. And our case was different too, for we had no canvases crowded with beauty to offer anyone not as though I had already attained, was written in large letters over everything we touched. It is still written there. Yet something in the words made them unforgettable. They struck down to reality. Perhaps in a sense not in the least understood then, they forecast what we were to find in the days when people would be kind to us and interested and pleased, and yet not really in sympathy and not truly understanding to count on such for cooperation was to be disappointed. It is well to be forewarned, for the work was to develop upon lines 
that would not find general acceptance. And we had to learn the unchangeable truth. Our master has never promised us success. He demands obedience. He expects faithfulness. Results are his concern, not ours. And our reputation is a matter of no consequence at all. It was in truth a fight and a prayer that we met in later years was ours in spirit then. What though I stand with the winners or perish with those that fall? Only the cowards are sinners. Fighting the fight is all. Strong is my foe who advances. Snapped is my blade, O Lord. See their proud banners and lances, but spare me the stub of a sword. End of chapter six.